This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our main guest will be Dr. Paul Hruz, an endocrinologist and pediatrician from St. Louis, Missouri, who's going to talk about gender dysphoria. It's been in the news. You've heard the phrase. He's going to explain what it means and how we might want to think about this. But we'll go through some medical news, have a preventive medicine tip of the day, and my patented medical trivia question of the day. And then at the end of the show, we're going to discuss something that a lot of people are not familiar with, and that is physician suicide and the reasons for it. But let's move on to Dr. Andrew Mullally with a medical news item. Okay, today in the news, I've been recently interested in a finding out of the Neuroimage Journal that talked about gratitude and how it relates to neural activity. So what is a Neuroimage Journal for those in our audience who might not know? Well, there's there's a effectively a, a gazillion medical journals. That, that, is, a, that is a true number. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, everybody's got their favorites. And this is one that caught my eye because of this article. I don't read it routinely, but it's neuroimaging, MRIs, CAT scans, what the brain is actually doing, what parts light up. And this article actually looks at functional MRI when the patient is, or the test subject, I guess, when they're undergoing some action or behavior the MRI is running at the same time to see what part of the brains light up for different types of activities. I love studies with that to see which parts of the brain are, are working. And it's always good to know that we are using all of our brain. That is a myth that we only use 10% of our brain, by the way. You, you kind of have to figure that we'd be using it all, otherwise it wouldn't be there. You know, it's got to <laughs> be there for a reason. It is. And, and this article, even more than the parts of the brain that lit up, the part that was interesting to me um, had to do with gratitude and depression and how gratitude affects our brain positively and permanently. Positively and permanently. So describe the studies. Well, the thing that they did is they actually took a group of, of patients who are being treated for either depression or anxiety, two things that are extremely common. Many of us have these from time to time in our lives. I actually read an article one time that said 85% of medical students are clinically depressed. What? And that, that resonated with me, you know, thinking of... 15% of them are not? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I said, man, I'm, I, you know those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the front row people. But, you know, there's, there's definitely times in our lives when people go through periods, either in their faith or their emotional life of dryness and sometimes clinical depression or anxiety. And so this, this study focused on those folks. And the thing that they did is they took a group of them and put them towards what we call the control group, the normal therapy, where they would undergo general uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and um, not talk therapy for those of you who don't know what CBT is. T- talk therapy and even even more techniques to help manage their depression and anxiety, right. whether it be slow breathing or you know mindfulness or meditation and, and things of that nature. And they took the other group and they gave them the same treatment plus they required them to keep a gratitude journal. Ah, yes. Which is, I thought that was really nice. They had to write letters expressing gratitude for things they were grateful in their life, and they had to keep a journal of things they were grateful for. And after a period of time, they took these subjects and they put them in an MRI machine and gave them situations where basically they, they, were, able to, they were able to interact with a simulated situation where they were giving charitable gifts to people. And so it, it was mm. kind of a pay-it-forward testing, testing setup. Now, apart from, from the design of the study, the thing that they really found is that the folks who were training themselves to express gratitude had more activity in their brain. And not only that, it appeared as though the brain may be more likely to express gratitude after they're in the habit of doing it. And so I'm always reminded of, you know, practice makes perfect. Or if if you want to develop virtues, you know, it's basically practicing them until they become part of of your nature effectively. And that's something that they did see on a functional MRI with gratitude. The more grateful someone was, the more likely they were to be grateful again. And they actually had better improvement with their clinical depression and anxiety than the folks who underwent standard therapy. That is 
very believable because actually right now on my bedside, I'm reading a book and I can't even pronounce the last name of the author. It's Sonia Lubomirsky. I believe she is originally from uh, Russia, but she writes in there about the 40% solution to happiness because 40% of your happiness is controllable. 60% is beyond your control. And she goes through a list of things to do to improve your happiness. And she quotes study after study that show that those who keep a gratitude journal, just like you're talking about, will increase their happiness level on a scale from, you know, 1 to 10, where the average person worldwide is somewhere between a 6 or 7. You can increase it at least one point, which is a substantial change. Well, I, I think it's so neat because there's really not been that much, you know, scientific inquiry into gratitude and even happiness. I mean, many many of the studies there are anthropological, but not really scientific, not medical but here we have some very good data. Not only is it affecting the brain, but you can actually be happier when you're more grateful. So this, this has changed the way a little bit how, how I practice medicine and how I treat folks with depression and anxiety. So I've always encouraged folks to look outside of themselves. Frequently folks who oh, are depressed yes. are introspective. They're belly button gazers. Exactly. And, and it's, it's not because they want to be necessarily, but that's the rut that they're in. And that's what we want to try and, you know, help coach them out of. And that's, I think that's one of the roles for, for uh, therapy. But a gratitude journal is such a practical thing. You don't need a, a licensed counselor to help you. Right. Um, it's something that I, I encourage people to every day write down three things they're grateful three for. Three things. And that's all it takes. And uh, I've been really impressed by the people who have come back. And I always – I don't want to necessarily read everything they're grateful for, but I want to see that they're actually doing yes. it. And folks have told me that it is it is helpful because all of a sudden you're not staring inward at the things that are stressful and problematic in your life. You're looking outward, which is really, I think, profoundly Christian. You know, oh, yes, it the is. Truth. Well, the beauty of the book I'm recommending is called The How of Happiness. The author's last name is L-Y-U-B-O-M-I-R-S-K-Y. And what's unique about this book is it is only using uh, studies uh, that have been peer-reviewed in the medical literature. So it is reviewing studies on happiness that really make a difference in people's lives. And of course, uh, she says too that you know these at-home things don't always do everything to help with depression, and there is still a huge role for counselors and some for medication. But try these first; they're you know free as cheap. Well, especially this time of year when so many people have the sad, the seasonal affective mm-hmm. disorder. I I see people constantly suffering from that in various degrees. Maybe maybe some of our listeners would appreciate that advice. Go ahead and start a gratitude journal. Yes. It's it's free and uh, doesn't take a long time, but I think it could have profound effects on your well-being. Well, if you've just joined us, we are grateful to you because you're listening to Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Tom McGovern on Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are now transitioning from a medical news article of the day to Andrew's patented preventive medicine tip of the day. Okay, we've got another great one from the USPSTF, our favorite (laughs) governmental organization for giving recommendations that are cost-effective to help people uh, in general. And so today has to do with taking a baby aspirin. Oh, I love those little baby aspirins. When they grow up, they'll be a full-size aspirin, won't they? (laughs) Well, I didn't know that's how it worked, but I'll take your word for it. Um, Surely you've probably heard of this before, as many of our listeners probably have. You're supposed to take a baby aspirin, but the why and the how and the when are kind of fuzzy for for many people. And so that's why I wanted to discuss this today. And I'm going to read the statement from the USPSTF. It's, It's a little technical, but hopefully we can unpack it. Good. It says that... They recommend initiating a low-dose aspirin, not a full dose, for the use of primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and colon cancer in adults, boys and girls, 50 to 60 years old, who have, here's all the caveats, a 10% or greater 10-year risk of having a cardiovascular event, and they're not at an extra high risk of bleeding, and they're expected to live for at least 10 years, and they're willing to take a baby aspirin every day for 10 years. So 
I, I often wonder if the folks on this task force are mostly lawyers. Uh, <laughs> they, they have a lot of conditions in every statement, but I've been reading a lot of contracts, and so it, it resonates with me. <laughs> and so I've, I've tried to break it down to the top three things you need to know. And, and so number one. Number one is, well, I guess kind of the overall thing is there's pros and cons. So the, the two of them are pros and one is the cons. The pros, it will help prevent a heart attack or a stroke if you're taking it. But really, it helps prevent it if, heaven forbid, you're, you're going to be having a heart attack or a stroke this weekend. It's going to be really effective at preventing that. And even folks who, kind of as a side note, take four baby aspirin and chew them at the onset of a heart attack, 25% more of those folks live that would have died from a heart attack. Wow. So something you can do when you're having that chest pain. Yeah. Chew four baby aspirin and you're going you're gonna to stand to benefit if it is a heart attack. Now, that being said... If you're taking baby aspirin every day today, in 20 years, you're not benefiting from taking it today. So it's, it's really a short-term benefit for taking it for heart attacks and strokes. However, the opposite is true for colon, colon cancer. And so some of, the, some of the numbers, you know, the devil's in the details. And so I, I wanted to expose some of the numbers of this. Over 10 years, this is talking about heart attacks and strokes, there's about six fewer deaths per 1,000 people who take a baby aspirin. That doesn't sound like a lot. But when you extrapolate that over effectively hundreds of millions of people, uh, then that's a significant number, especially if that one of those six people is you. Uh, so that's that's beneficial. Well, that's six thousand per million, there or in a city the size of Fort Wayne, it'd be fifteen to sixteen hundred people every ten years. Every ten years, and so that's that's sizable enough, especially if the risks are low. And so basically, that's for the the cardiovascular risk for an event. And then for the colon cancer, the numbers are a little different. Over 20 years, it takes longer to get colon cancer, there's about 7 to 24 fewer colon cancers per 1,000 people. Wow. And so it depends on your risk. That's why there's a little range there. Yes. But normally, there would be between 30 and 100 cancers per 1,000 people over that time. And this mitigates it by 7 to 24, depending on your risk. So there's a real reduction there, especially for something as common and deadly as colon cancer, which we've talked about in a previous episode. Yes. Um, however, uh, the caveats, uh, there is some, some risk, and it can be substantial. So I definitely recommend talking about this with your primary care provider to see if it's a good fit for you. The, the risk of even small injuries, you know, if you, if you skin your knuckles or you cut yourself with a kitchen knife, you're not going to be able to rub it on your pants like I do and keep moving. You're going to have to stop and hold pressure, and it's going to ooze for a while. And heaven forbid you were to get in a car accident, increased risk of having a head bleed. You know, to be honest, though, I operate on patients every day who are on blood thinners. We do not stop them. And I virtually never have trouble with bleeding in patients only taking aspirin as a blood thinner. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a very pleasant surprise. Well, the, the numbers that the, the task force gave, or effectively I, I was able to find, was that the risk of major bleed, not a head bleed, but major non-cranial bleed, was effectively between 4 and 22 per 1,000, where normally there's about 8 to 40 bleeds. This would be potentially another 4 to 20 more uh, over 10 years. Wow. So that's... I mean, it's a substantial it risk, is. but I think I think it highlights, especially that range, it highlights picking the right people. Yes. So if you've got a high risk for a cardiovascular event and a low risk for bleeding, you're an awesome candidate. If you're somebody who has a high, high risk of bleeding and generally you're healthy cardiovascularly wise, then you're a poor candidate. So it's got to be individualized, but that's why we recommend it. That makes sense. Well, and before our break, we're on to the medical trivia question of the day. Love that habanera. So, ultraviolet light is responsible for about 90% of all skin cancers. And in this country, that's 5.4 million a year. Additionally, ultraviolet light is responsible for 80% of, are you listening ladies? And men who care? All <laughs> skin wrinkling. Yes, 80% of all skin wrinkles can be attributed to the sun. So, here's the question. If it takes one hour of ultraviolet light exposure from the sun for you to get a sunburn, how long can you be in the sun before you start forming irreversible skin wrinkling? And as a bonus question, yes, a two for one, what is tanorexia? Ooh, that doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. You don't want to have it. 
So we'll be right back after the break with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Today our guest is Dr. Paul Ruse. He's a pediatrician, endocrinologist, diabetes researcher at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. And in Denver in September, Andrew and I both heard him speak about the fascinating topic of gender dysphoria. And it's become so important in our national conversation now, whereas five to 10 years ago, people wouldn't know what it was. Dr. Ruse, welcome, and please tell us, why is this such a, an, an important topic to be discussing now? Well, gender dysphoria and the whole topic of gender identity really has just, as you said, exploded onto the national and international scene in just the last several years. Actually, knowledge of individuals that have a gender identity that differs from their sex has been known for quite some time, but most of that discussion has gone on in, in closed academic circles. You know, with the story of, of Bruce Jenner uh, coming out as Caitlyn Jenner and, and a number of other reports, it really has captured the imagination of our entire nation, and now we're hearing it in, in talk shows and social media, and it's actually worked its way into courtrooms, and, and it's really front of the mind of many individuals. And, and people are, are still struggling with how to understand this, a lot of the information that's being put out there is not accurate. And really, I think there's a lot of elements of this discussion that really need increased clarity. And what is meant by the term gender dysphoria? Well, specifically, gender dysphoria is a term that refers to individuals that experience significant discomfort with a gender identity that does not align with their biological sex. It, it's interesting, the, the whole terminology and how we refer to these individuals has evolved. It, again, initially, many uh, years ago, it was well recognized that, that this was a psychological condition, and it was actually referred to as a gender identity disorder. With the, the changes that have gone on culturally, very recently there's been a change in, in trying to put forward uh, the belief that this misalignment of identity with, with sex is something that's part of normal human variation. And so uh, the term that's used is gender dysphoria to get away from this being viewed as something that is a disease or pathologic uh, and just refer to the discomfort that's present in these individuals. So now, I, I graduated medical school uh, not too long ago in 2013. And even while I was in medical school, I had never heard the term gender dysphoria. We, we were still talking about gender identity disorder. Would it be safe to say that the doctors are not driving this linguistic change? It's a very interesting story. And so this actually came out when the psychiatrists that, or at least the manual that's used by psychiatrists to define psychological and psychiatric disease came out with the latest edition, uh, the fifth edition of, of the manual. And, and it was a, a marked change from the prior edition and the terminology there was changed. And, and if you investigate uh, all of the discussions that went on at that time, it's very clear that that change had nothing to do with any new scientific information. And it was actually a very heated discussion at the time, but it was adopted to make this change uh, largely because of the ideology and, and some of the cultural changes that have been going on. So sex, really, as you define in your talk, is male if you are a genetic donor and female if you are a genetic recipient. It's, it's pretty black and white, except for a rare situation that you often deal with and is sometimes brought into this gender dysphoria debate, and that's called the intersex condition. Can you explain what that means and why it's really not a relevant part of the gender dysphoria discussion? Well, I, yes, absolutely. I think it's important that everyone understands what we mean by sex, and, and it's becoming more and more difficult to really uh, maintain that understanding that, that we've known uh, uh, almost forever. Sex, again, is, is in relation to a biological process um, for reproduction, and we know this not just in humans. We know it in, in, uh, throughout the animal kingdom. This existence of individuals that uh, are born 
with features that don't fit, are clearly um, observable as either male or female, uh, they, they do exist. It's a very rare condition. In fact, it's one of the things that I um, help with in my profession. Uh, the first question that any parent will ask when, it, when their child is born, is it a boy or a girl? And the reality is that there's a very, very small number of children that when that question is asked, the, the answer is, uh, I don't know. Now, there's a lot of reasons why uh, these uh, abnormalities to develop. And the important thing is that usually it's a, a problem with the normal function as male and female, and many of these individuals uh, are not fertile and, and they're not able to, uh, to reproduce, at least without significant intervention. And, and it's important you know, to recognize that when we're talking about gender dysphoria in individuals with gender identity disorder, the vast majority of them have completely normal uh, biology so that they're easily defined as male and female in the traditional sense that we've always understand. Uh, understood male and female. So, you know, it, it's kind of unfortunate that this is brought in to bring in the ideology uh, to say that gender uh, discordance or the identity not in alignment with sex is something that's normal to, to use this variation in this abnormal condition of disorders of sexual development. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we're interviewing Dr. Paul Ruse, a pediatric endocrinologist from Washington University in St. Louis about gender dysphoria. Paul, how common is it for children to identify as members of the opposite sex? Well, we've always known this to be a very, very rare condition. In fact, in that uh, psychiatrist manual that I mentioned earlier, the estimates were a fraction of a fraction of a percent, 0.005 to 0.01 percent of individuals uh, with this condition. Uh, what we've observed, though, with this increased uh, awareness, uh, societal awareness and the dis discussion that's going on, the number of people that are presenting for care for gender dysphoria is really skyrocketing. And by some estimates, we're talking several thousand percent increases in the number of patients. And I, I've even seen some recent estimates saying that one to three percent of the entire population has uh, a variance in their gender identity. Now, a lot of those statistics depend upon how those questions are asked. And it's not entirely known why this uh, incidence is changing. What the advocates often will claim is that these individuals always existed. They were there and now because it is recognized they're coming forward for treatment. But another hypothesis that needs to be uh, looked at is, is whether this whole phenomenon is bringing people to have a gender identity that is different than their sex as, as a potential means to address other issues that are going on in their lives. And, and so there's certainly a, a tremendous amount of science that still needs to be done to understand what's going on. So they might be I, doing I it to get attention? Uh, it may be uh, some individuals for attention, but I think many of these individuals are, are really struggling with, with developmental issues and, and other things that have gone on in their life. And it has become popular then uh, to identify as transgender as a way to, to deal with those problems. And, and again, this has not been proven, uh, but it's certainly a very uh, plausible hypothesis or, or something that, that may explain this phenomenon. So uh, to say that these individuals always existed is there's really no science that actually supports that, uh, that contention. You know, one of, one of the things that we, at least I always think of, is the, the concepts of nature and nurture and how both genetics and lived experience or modeled behavior from parents or, or other role models or culture can influence who you become and kind of your, your phenotype, if you will. Is there a clear idea how much of this is nature and how much is nurture? It, it, that's a, an interesting question, and, and the reality is, uh, as in many areas of this whole phenomenon of gender dysphoria, we don't have the answers. What exactly causes gender dysphoria is not known. But there are some clues that we have. Now that the contention is also made that this is something that is inherited, it's genetically determined, it's present at birth, and it can't be changed. And each of those statements really isn't supported fully by the evidence that we do have, admitting that we don't have a full picture. One, one uh, great way of looking at this is in studies that have been done, and this is very interesting, looking at identical twins. 
Now, if, if you had a condition that was uh, genetically determined and you had uh, uh, two individuals, genetic or um, identical twins, they have identical DNA, you would expect that there would be complete agreement uh, in the condition. And when we look at children with gender dysphoria, rather than seeing 100% of individuals sharing that trait if they share the genes, it's only about a third. Now, that's certainly higher than the background prevalence. So it suggests that there may be a genetic contribution, but it certainly speaks to other factors. And at best, what we can say with the information that we have is that this is likely to be multifactorial, like in many other diseases, so that there are both genetic and environmental things that actually bring this about. But that doesn't mean that there's a transgender gene either. It may mean that the genetic information that is shared is, for example, in, in coping skills or, or some other area. And we certainly have a lot of other diseases we know where there is a genetic influence. It doesn't determine the disease. Um, again, all of these are, are very important scientific questions. They need further study. These people, you emphasize, are truly suffering. What is the nature of their suffering? What is it that they are experiencing? Well, I think that uh, you know, the term dysphoria, I think, captures to some extent the discomfort that they have, but it, it doesn't fully capture all of the, the problems that they experience. It's very, very well known uh, that there's a, a large increase in the incidence of depression, anxiety, substance abuse in these individuals. In fact, the suicide risk is, is quite high. Some estimates are that half of all individuals with gender dysphoria will uh, contemplate suicide and, and nearly a third will act upon those thoughts. And so wow. these children uh, that are experiencing this do uh, indeed need help. And I think that, that the attention that is coming forward to be able to offer a treatment for them, I think, is, is very badly needed. The question that needs to be asked, though, is what is being offered to them truly helpful to them, and does it take care of these, these other problems that they experience? You know, just, just those numbers alone, the risk of suicide, here in Indiana where we're recording, we have one of the higher rates of teen suicide in the whole country. Even just those numbers would lead me to think that we have to develop a coherent treatment plan uh, apart from the social the the social issues that surround this what what has changed in the way that we recommend treating these folks as a medical community over the last 10 years or so well, it's, it's very striking, and, and there's been really a, a tremendous change in the way that we approach uh, this particular condition. Um, it, I think it was reflected, in, as we talked earlier, about um, even the diagnosis of gender identity disorder versus gender dysphoria being uh, a problem, a psychological uh, problem with the identity not matching the body. Uh, the traditional approach had been to understand at the psychological level what stressors were going on and, and to be able to support the individual uh, from a psychological standpoint. And, and really largely, especially in children, uh, the approach was expectant waiting. Uh, it was recognized that the vast a majority of individuals, at least children, that present with gender discordance, this uh, differing gender identity from their body, that if you just leave them alone, uh, that it will resolve. And, and some of the, most of the, the estimates are, are upwards of about 85% uh, to 90% of individuals, uh, this will be the natural course. So they'll they just experience. grow out of it with support from their parents that they really are a boy or a girl, and they'll come to accept that. Exactly, exactly. Well, now, it's not 100%, but we, and right. we don't fully understand those individuals that don't have that experience, but there's certainly uh, a number of different uh, thoughts about why that may actually occur. We need to take a break now between the two halves of our interview, but uh, we'll be right back with more of Dr. Ruse and gender dysphoria here on Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Ruse, a pediatric endocrinologist. And now we're to the point of how modern psychiatric experts are recommending gender dysphoria be treated. And you talk about three 
steps in the medical treatment of this, even before anything surgical is done. What is being done by many physicians now, Dr. Ruse? Well, the, the current treatment paradigm for gender dysphoria uh, has actually evolved from studies that began in the Netherlands. And, and really the first stage uh, in the, the first intervention, even before medical therapy is, is undertaken, is this process of social affirmation. So this is rather than challenging somebody's identity or at least um, exploring that, it, it's supported. And, and this is done in a number of different ways with allowing a, a, an individual to change their name, differing in pronoun usage to what they prefer, uh, cross-dressing. And, and in the schools, we're often you know, seeing encouragement, uh, allowing these children to, to use bathrooms in accord with their identity, not their biology. And that's usually the first uh, intervention that, that is put forward. And these are actually part of, of the recommendations by some of the professional organizations that are putting forward this current treatment paradigm. And how early does that happen? At what age are they recommending doing that? Well, some of the groups actually advocate this at very, very young ages, even down to uh, three years of age. Wow. The initial—it's—it's it's, it's actually shocking. Now, the initial uh, guidelines that were put forward by my professional society, the Endocrine Society, in the first series uh, of the recommendations, actually cautioned against that, and and they cited as evidence uh, in not doing this uh, the, what I mentioned previously about the very high desistance rates. And the question was asked at that time: You know, would that intervention? Uh, alter that normal course and, and drive more children to go on to the later stages of treatment. It's very interesting. A new set of guidelines just came out late last year where they really softened uh, that recommendation. And I think in general, the profession is is ignoring that data and advocating moving forward with this social affirmation at younger and younger ages. You know, I read this story about Bruce Jenner when he was younger because it uh, he, like I and my siblings, would get to take turns spending Saturday evenings at Grandma's house. You know, we watched Lawrence Welk, ate pizza, went to bed, and went to church the next morning. He, when he was, went to his grandmother's house, she made him wear a dress over and over and over again. I can't imagine what that would do to somebody if they were getting that kind of affirmation. Are there studies on that? Well, unfortunately, there's there's not the, the proper studies that need to be done to really understand this. There are a number of case reports, and, and you look at, at the data, and that, uh, in, whether it's uh, having somebody cross-dress early on uh, or many of the other things that, that might occur uh, in, in family dysfunction, uh, divorce, abuse, it, all sorts of things that go on during this period of, of development uh, that might influence yes. somebody in, in this identity. You know, the other thing is that uh, children often experiment. Uh, they, they put on different hats and they try for a variety of reasons, and some of them, some of them have really very little to do with uh, their gender identity, of exploring uh, what it's like uh, to, to dress uh, in the opposite sex. And, and I think that's part of what we see in, in these children uh, if they're left alone. They explore this, uh, they realize that this isn't uh, really uh, something that, that fulfills any, any deep-seated need, and, and then they move back to uh, behaving in a way that's more in accord with their biology. But, you know, there, there's the stories that are out there uh, are, are many uh, as far as these types of influences uh, that have led them down this path. The I, next step in treatment would be the first medicines, so-called, that would be given. What would these be? What would they do? Um, so the first medical intervention would be given usually at the time that these children are entering into puberty. So during puberty, the body is changing as it's supposed to as either male or female. And for many of these individuals that have a gender identity that isn't in agreement with their biological sex, this uh, leads to heightening of the distress that, that they experience. And so the intervention that's been proposed is actually to block that pubertal uh, development. So essentially what's being done is that powerful chemicals are being given that uh, will block down the body's normal uh, signaling uh, to prevent uh, the normal things that happen to produce the hormones that lead to the physical changes that children experience. And, and the rationale in doing that is 
is, is several fold. It's claimed that this intervention allows the individual to have more time to explore their gender identity and have more time to, to real, if they are going to desist or go back to having identity in agreement with their biology, uh, that this will give them time to do that. It's also done to alleviate that discomfort uh, so that if, if the physical changes are leading the child to be disturbed, if you take away those signals, that that, that uh, discomfort will, will get better. And it's argued that this is entirely safe and fully reversible, and that's, that's frequently stated by the people that are putting forward this treatment. But there are many problems, you know, with, with each of those particular statements. First off, that puberty itself, or adolescence, I should say, is, is inherently difficult for, for children. Anyone who's gone, we've all gone through puberty, and we realize not only the physical changes that happen at, at that period of time, but all of the uh, psychological and adjustment social issues that are going on. So there, it's a very complex and, and difficult time. We, in, as parents, uh, often will not intervene in di- things that are necessary for a child to experience by taking away that discomfort. It may actually uh, prevent them from normal uh, developing normally. You know, in in claiming that it's entirely uh, safe is, is really, it's difficult to make that claim because these particular medicines have never been formally studied for the treatment of gender dysphoria. They're not FDA uh, approved for that indication. They've been used previously to suppress uh, puberty when it happens abnormally early. And it's also been used in adults uh, that are undergoing treatment for uh, various forms of, of cancer. So we really don't have the data to understand exactly what we're doing. But there's, there's enough evidence already emerging that there may be problems. Uh, for example, the time of puberty is critically important for children to develop normal bone density. And by preventing their exposure to the normal puberty hormones, we're losing that critical window of time, certainly putting children at risk of having osteoporosis later in life. That's just one example. Another uh, probably even more serious uh, problem is that uh, when we block normal pubertal development, uh, particularly when we accompany that by the next stage of treatment uh, that we're going to talk about, cross-sex hormones, we're essentially uh, rendering uh, these children sterile. Uh, It's expected that they will have infertility and that is likely to be irreversible when it is begun at this very early age. And then talking about the fully reversible component of this treatment, it's really a hard argument to say that it's fully reversible when you're interrupting a normal developmental process. And any pediatrician recognizes this, uh, and probably any parent as well, that if you stop normal puberty and, and by considering it a disease uh, rather than some being something that's normal, even if you uh, stop that treatment many years into the future, you know, three, four, five years in the future, You've already uh, affected the normal development process. You can't go back in time. So it, it really can't be thought of as being something that's reversible either. That makes a lot of sense that it's not reversible. It doesn't make any sense to me that parents would do this to their young children. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we're discussing with Dr. Paul Ruza, pediatric endocrinologist, gender dysphoria. In the last four minutes of our interview here, we'd like to cover something important. First of all, some of these patients go on to even have sex reassignment surgery, either above the waist or below the waist. Does this, in combination with those other steps, the puberty blockade and the cross-sex hormones, does this lead to a benefit in the gender dysphoria? Are they happier? Are they better off? Well, this is one of the most alarming uh components of this new treatment paradigm, at least with the intensity with which it's being put forward, is this is the only way uh, that we can move forward. In fact, we have no long-term data. Uh, There's very short-term studies, uh, and the science behind them are, are, they're not very well-conducted studies, they're small and have problems, show that there's a very short-term benefit in alleviating dysphoria. However, the only data that we have long-term on these patients that have gone through with sex reassignment surgery, and really that term itself needs to be challenged because the, you know, the sex is not being changed by this intervention, but by doing the, the body-modifying uh, surgeries, 
we talked earlier about uh, the problems that these individuals have, for example, high rates of suicide and depression. The long-term studies show that that doesn't uh, go away, that these uh, adults that have undergone this treatment many years down the road uh, continue to have very high levels of depression, uh, suicide risk, and all of the other morbidities or, or uh, problems. That and is it higher earlier. even than before their medical and surgical interventions? Yeah, the data is, is so there's there's some studies out there that, that consistently show that that 50% suicide attempt uh, still exists. In one study that was done in the Netherlands, comparing it to people that do not have gender dysphoria, it was nearly 20-fold above the background population <sighs> of their uh, attempted suicide. And that's the data that we have. It's not, not perfect data, but it's certainly uh, consistent giving the evidence that this intervention does not fix the problem. And so to say that this is the way to go forward when we don't have the data to suggest that this current treatment approach uh, has a long-term beneficial effect, I think is very disturbing from the perspective of a physician, uh, from a, a scientist, and anybody that is uh, a parent or anybody that uh, knows somebody that has this condition. Now, you've in the past made a connection between the treatment of gender dysphoria to contraception. What's, what's the connection there? Well, I think if you, if you look at some of the statements that are made about trying to redefine what sex is and trying to minimize the sterility that's being induced into these uh, children at very early ages, at ages that they, they don't really even fully understand, you know, what their sexuality is, uh, really the basis for that is, is being able to separate out the normal biological purpose of uh, sexuality. Uh, you know, sex is, is very uh, deep and, and there's lots of components that we could discuss, but from a purely biological perspective, it is inherently related to reproduction. And I think when we talk about uh, contraception, that was one of the first stages of being able to separate out our behavior from uh, the consequences of that behavior. So that allows people to forget that, that sex, uh, from a biological standpoint, is geared toward reproduction. And something else I heard you say is that in both cases, something that's normal is treated as a disease. In gender dysphoria, biological sex is treated as a disease, or with contraception, fertility is treated as a disease. And you gave an example that we would never take somebody with anorexia and because they thought they were still overweight, we would allow them to undergo liposuction or gastric bypass. That would be nonsense. It would be harmful. And yet that seems to be what's going on here with gender dysphoria treatment. Isn't that true? I, I, I think that that analogy is quite good. And they're different conditions. But the approach, I think, is is similar in that when there's clearly a discrepancy with the reality of what's going on, just, you know, biological reality from what the perception is. In other conditions, um, it is not the way that we would approach the problem to reinforce the, the psychological belief that is at odds with, with the body itself. And we know what the consequences would be in anorexia and in other conditions as well. My, um, my last question, if our listeners want to learn more about this, is there a trustworthy resource they can go to? Well, there are, are certainly not as many as need to be uh, written, but there are, are some resources that are available that discuss some of these issues in greater detail. For example, we talked earlier about the problems with pubertal blockade, and I, I think that my colleagues uh, Lawrence Mayer and, and Paul McHugh and myself uh, wrote this paper in the New Atlantis uh, just this last year, going into very extensive detail outlining exactly what this procedure is and how it um, has so many problems uh, available. There is a need uh, for more to be written about this. I think that the church uh, is starting to write uh, on this particular topic, and we're starting to see more things that not only uh, from um, you know the addressing uh, priests and bishops and trying to understand this, but I think the, that all of the laity uh, to be able to understand uh, what is going on, why it's a problem, and, and really how we can approach these individuals with compassion, dignity, uh, respect, you know, working side by side with them to alleviate some of the unjust discrimination and bullying and all the other things that go on. But at the same time, uh, work toward uh, interventions that are truly helpful for them 
not in, not just in the short run, but in the long run, uh, and, and really with a long-term perspective. Absolutely. They are suffering. They deserve our compassion and our care. Thank you so much for enlightening our listeners on Dr. Doctor. Thank you for being here, Dr. Roos. We really appreciate it this night. I think our listeners are going to enjoy this segment. And we'll be right back after the break with the final segment of Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. And it's the final segment of the show, which means it is time to answer the medical trivia question of the day. And that question is, ultraviolet light is responsible for 90% of all skin cancers, but additionally, it is responsible for 80% of all skin wrinkling. So if it takes one hour, that's 60 minutes, that's 3,600 seconds of ultraviolet light exposure for you to get a sunburn, how long can you be in the sun before you start forming irreversible skin wrinkles? It's got to be a few hours, right, Tom? You would think, but I remember being at a medical meeting several years ago where a researcher in this area spoke, and he said it takes 1% of the time it takes to get a sunburn to induce skin wrinkling. So the correct answer, if it takes you an hour to get a sunburn, it takes 36 seconds of sun exposure before you start to cause irreversible skin wrinkling. There's going to be a lot of people who uh, are not happy with that. They will not question. be happy, but they might <laughs> feel better in the sun. But then there are those people who have tanorexia, and that's really a diagnosis. And tanorexia, which rhymes with anorexia, has this in common. They are both body image disorders. Someone with anorexia thinks that they are overweight, no matter what the mirror says to them. Those with tanorexia don't think that their skin tone looks right and it needs to be darker from tanning. And this is different than a tanning addiction. And there is true tanning addiction because in some people, tanning releases those onboard narcotics called endorphins that make them feel better. So the more tanning, the, more, the better they feel. Right. And that's not everybody. That's only some people. Uh, and that is a true addiction. And that is not tanorexia, which is a body image disorder. And uh, and who, just, just to be clear, Tom, who's, who's the ideal person to go tanning? Who do we recommend tanning for? Uh, actually, we recommend it for absolutely nobody because okay. <laughs> it does nothing beneficial to the skin. If your body is tanning, it means that you have killed skin cells because the tan is the skin's reaction to ultraviolet light damage. So what happens is some of the cells die, their DNA in those cells break up into little segments, and those little segments tell the other cells around them, hey, we're under attack. Start making melanin or pigment to protect yourself from this attack. And so then 30 years later, they come and see you. Right. They come and see me with skin cancers or they see cosmetic surgeons with their excessive wrinkling or discoloration of their skin. So that's skin wrinkling. And we'll leave that mildly depressing topic for Andrew with an uplifting topic. Yes, we've got to end on a happy note. And so today, being the pop culture guru out of the three of us. That's, <laughs> that's a... not a high bar to clear, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I actually have a music recommendation that I am happy to endorse. The Hillbilly Thomists. Now, who are they, you might ask? This, this is a group of friars from the eastern province of the Dominicans in America, the St. Joseph province, who play both bluegrass and there's there's a little bit of a Celtic uh, lilt to them uh, that I really enjoy. I got their CD recently and I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's a top-selling CD in the folk category on Amazon, actually. Wow. Yes, they're doing quite well and they're, they're named the Hillbilly Thomas after kind of a quote from Flannery O'Connor. Ah, yes. Uh, everybody who has read me, she's speaking, Wise Bloods, one of her works, thinks that she's a hillbilly nihilist. And she says, whereas, really, I'm a hillbilly Thomist. <laughs> and so that's, that's where they got their name. And so these are, these are brothers that are playing bluegrass-style folk music. Uh, some of the, the songs on their CD include Amazing Grace and even some that I can, I don't know for sure, but I assume are originals. There's one that I really like called I'm a Dog, the Dominicans. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. And so there's a, a Dominicanis. lot of... Dominicanis. 
the, a yes, lot of the play on the word Dominican in Latin is yeah, the dogs of the Lord. And so I I can wholeheartedly endorse these guys and their their uh, I guess I don't know if it's their motto, but on their shirts it says a good band is hard to find because <laughs> Flannery O'Connor said you know a good man to hard to f- is fun. That's is hard one to of find. her um, her her stories. Yeah, she has a. I've listened to and read much Flannery O'Connor. My favorite quote of hers: She was living in Milledgeville, Georgia. I mean, nowhere Georgia, and yet she was beloved of many in the um, writing community. So she was up in New York City, this big to-do with all these fancy, rich people. And she said she was pretty much on exhibition that night as the only Catholic in the room. And sometime around one in the morning, this dinner party went on very long, and she hadn't said boo. And somebody starts to talk about the Eucharist. And they wanted to get her in the conversation, and they said, oh, the Eucharist, it's, it's such a, a wonderful symbol, Flannery. And she says, and it's the only thing she said all night, is said, if the Eucharist is a symbol, then to hell with it. And she was right, because she knows that the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, and if it's just a symbol, then we're all living a lie as Catholics. But she said, nope, that's what it is. So I love it that these guys got their inspiration from Flannery O'Connor. But, but the question is, Andrew, what does this have to do with the practice of medicine? You know, I think a lot because you have to, as we open this show, we talked about ways to make you happier with gratitude. And I think part of that, you know, music speaks to the soul. And actually, if, if you sing, you pray twice. Yes. I've heard. St. Augustine. And so I would highly encourage folks to pick up this CD off of Amazon, support these guys, and a shout-out to my brother-in-law, who's an Eastern Province Dominican, Father Jerome and Columbus. Yay, Dominicans. And on our ex- upcoming show, we're going to be interviewing a Dominican, but on the distaff side, a Dominican sister. All right. But this has been another episode of Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Andrew Malawi. And we're signing off until next time. So please remember, your medical decisions can have profound consequences. So please, choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, our own Dr. Andrew Mullally will give an update on the push for physician-assisted suicide in the United States, what the church teaches about the practice, and how physicians and patients can advocate toward greater respect for all human dignity. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find all our episodes online at redeemerradio.com doctor.